Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. I'm looking forward very much to uh, speaking to you tonight and I want to start by uh, prompting you to imagine yourself in Paris in 1683 and you are walking around in the streets of Paris. And perhaps you might know about the famous secret remedy, Oviatin, an antidote to poison and a treatment for the plague, uh, which had as one of its main ingredients opium. And if you had an eye to a bit of the medical literature, you might know that Oviatin originally came from Rome and that it had reached Paris in the mid-17th century, where it was exclusively sold by the royal privilege holder, Cristoforo Contugi, and his family. Um, Contogi was famously one of the first medical entrepreneurs in Paris to use advertising, and his printed posters date back to 1647, which was when he received his privilege. His widow and sons were continuing the trade after his death in the 1670s. Enviatin was a highly profitable enterprise, and as such, it was coveted by the town's guild of apothecaries. Contugi designated his wares with a sun insignia, which is visible here on his poster right at the top. I don't have a pointer, in fact, but do I? Yes, I do. So it's this insignia up here. Okay. So there you are in Paris in 1683, and you're feeling maybe a bit off colour. And you might have heard through the newspapers or by word of mouth about the true secret of Oviatin being exclusively in Contugi's possession. But you also might know that quite a lot of attempts had been made by rival merchants to work out and publish his recipe. And one example here is Moise Charat, who was a royal apothecary who published a recipe for Oviatin in his uh, Pharmacopoeia Royale, or Royal Pharmacopoeia, of 1676, so just a few years before this happened. And here is, on the left-hand side, uh, the page with Charas' original recipe for Oviatin. Um, I just want to draw your attention to the fact this is a compound remedy. It's got a very large range of different ingredients, um, but opium always had a prominent place among them. So it's a complicated remedy indeed. So as you wander through the streets of Paris, the urge takes you to go and buy some Oviatin. Now, you know the location of the authentic source for the drug because it's written all over Contrugui's advertising. His shop is on the corner of the Rue Dauphine and the, and the Seine. So here's the Rue Dauphine and, you can, and here's the Seine along here, running along here, obviously. So it's on this corner, right? Um, so you cross the bridge on, from the Pont Neuf. You're walking along here. And as you get to the other side, to where it joins the Rue Dauphine, you stop in perplexity because ahead of you, you see not one but two Contugi shops. <laughs> now, there are no street numbers in 1683, so you have no way of telling which 
corner between the Rue Dauphine and the Seine is the right one. And more perplexingly, both the corner shops look identical. Both of them have got the same signboard hanging outside. And even when you look through the window, both of them have got the same window display, they've got the same packaging on all of their goods, and the same trademark, the sun insignia that you saw in the advertisement a bit earlier. And this is the typical kind of 18th century signboard that you get outside all kinds of shops. In this case, it's a mid-18th century grocer's shops in Vienna, but they're very similar in France. There isn't, the Contugu one doesn't survive, but it was, a, it was a sun again. Well, not surprisingly, perhaps, Contugu's widow, Robert Richard, took the shopkeeper on the other corner of the Rue Dauphine to court. And the perpetrator was a journeyman apothecary called Jean Regnault, who was trading on behalf of a licensed apothecary in the Royal Medical Service called Antoine Boulogne. Boulogne was himself based at court. He had a shop in Versailles, but he was the tenant, the official tenant of the shop on the opposite corner of the Rue Dauphine, where all of Contugi's trademarks and signs were cheekily on display. And in the ensuing lawsuit, the royal apothecaries argued that they were legally entitled to manufacture any recipe that had been published in Charas Pharmacopée Royale of 1676. And they argued that Orvientan's composition had been taught in pharmacopoeias, in fact, for over six centuries. So Orvientan was not a new invention, nor was it an individual discovery by Contugi. Nothing prevented the Contugi family from selling their own Orvietin, the apothecary said, but they couldn't prevent others who were licensed to manufacture remedies in the city of Paris from pursuing their own trade legally and making their own Orvietin, since the recipe had already been made public. So the point to make here is this dispute boiled down to a question of whether secrecy or advertising was the central legal issue within the medical marketplace. Could a royal apothecary, no matter how privileged, go this far in counterfeiting a drug, down to copying the trademark, signboard and packaging? In essence, this was an important problem about the relationship between publicity and private ownership of a drug of a sort that only the emergence of advertising could possibly produce. Even if the apothecary's argument was accepted that the recipe for the drug was in the public domain, was there something else to Contugi's ownership of the drug beyond composition and which related instead to the manner of presentation of the drug itself? The Royal Council, which decided the matter, clearly did acknowledge this distinction. <coughs> and they ruled that it should remain free for Louis-Anne de Contugui, Jr., to sell and retail his Oviatin as before, but that the apothecaries of the royal household might not sell their Oviatin using the compositions taught by the authors of pharmacopoeias from the houses at the end of the Pont Neuf, which is the, the houses in question, nor take and counterfeit the stamp, flyers, boxes, trademark or signboard of the said Mr. Contugi Jr., nor stick up posters with the name of Orvietin outside their shops, in the streets, at crossroads or in public squares. We tend to think of advertising as primarily used to increase sales of a product. 
The work of Roy Porter and others has brought to attention the many ways in which the early modern medical entrepreneurs used advertising for this purpose, to the extent that the medical marketplace has become something of a cornerstone of the early modern history of medicine and of the new history of consumption that's emerged in the last few decades. And of course, as many of you will probably know, England has been the main focus of attention. In the talk today, I want to talk about some of the ways in which medical advertising was done within an earlier and geographically different setting, absolutist France, which is usually seen as a much more controlled commercial environment. The Contugui example shows how advertising could be used as a weapon, attesting to the hot competition within Paris over the lucrative drugs market, even if not all attempts to counterfeit would be quite so blatant. And this talk comes from a project in which I'm looking at the consumption of remedies made from exotic plant materials in Paris and at court in the period between 1670 and 1730. And my story begins with the circumstances under which these drugs changed hands and were consumed within the European metropolis. Now, the current fashion within the historical field is to look at these substances in terms of global patterns of movement of individual substances. And the individual drugs themselves are seen as having a kind of continuous history over time and through space. But what I want to start with is the notion rather that the meanings of these different drugs have changed very radically as they have moved between different users. And one example of how differently this might make us look at writing the history of drugs is to reconsider a now classic account from the 1980s which adopted what is known as a commodity biography approach to the case of sugar, Sidney Mintz's sweetness and power. In his seminal study of the growing consumption of sugar in modern Britain, Mintz, an anthropologist, followed sugar around the world to highlight a triangular trade that this exotic plant substance generated. Sugar consumption in Britain led to increasing sugar cultivation in the overseas colonies, and this produced a demand for more labour which drove a growth in the slave trade. In turn, this led to the transfer of European silver to the West African coast for the purchase of slaves. For mints, the growth in sugar was driven by a, a biological propensity for sweetness, which made it inevitable that sugar consumption would increase. In other words, mints treated consumers as the driving force behind growing consumption of this plant commodity, which, if not unknown before 1700, certainly underwent a signal transformation within the everyday life of elites around that time and became a quotidian substance. But perhaps mints' biological reductionism seems more like a question that can be investigated – Lots of different plant substances were coming into general daily use over this time, such as tea, coffee, chocolate, pepper, vanilla, ipecacuana, quinquina, and jala. For many of these substances, Mintz's model of biological urges driving consumers simply doesn't work. This is clear if we consider some plant materials that have failed to retain their significance to the present day, but were eagerly pursued by early modern consumers, such as the class of purgatives. Now, you often hear it said that we can explain past cravings for coffee or tea by appealing to the psychopharmacological effects of their component chemicals. But the fact that early modern people also desired purgatives in vast quantities is really very much less obvious. And in turn, that should perhaps destabilise our assumptions uh, of 
how and why people decided to consume other kinds of substances that are currently fitting into histories of stimulants, spices and drugs. Now one thing to point out is, of course, this is a much bigger story in a sense. There's a much longer period during which the consumption of exotic plant substances changed and increased. It happens, in fact, over the course of the whole early modern period from the mid-16th century onwards. But for Paris, 1700 does seem to have been a fairly important moment in the process of turning certain substances like coffee, quinquina or sugar into the subjects of large-scale consumption. So universally desired and even expected did such drugs become that as early as the 1690s, an anonymous correspondent in the newspaper Mercure Galant conferred on coffee a status akin to that of bread as a barometer of public feeling. And he says, I'm assuming it's he, I don't know this, but um, people are concerned with coffee's availability and cost and fear shortages of it as they do those of bread. News that it is rare and dear is upsetting news for the public. So this is really quite a, a, a strong comparison, in a sense, that coffee is becoming a substance which is so integral to daily life that one can no longer do without it. What I'm trying to do with my current research is to get closer to those moments of experimentation and uncertainty with foreign substances before they became established, familiar and domesticated. So before this kind of tip-over point, if you like, had been reached. What underpinned consumers' decisions to take up exotic plant substances that could only be obtained at great cost and from the ends of the universe, as Dr. Etienne-Louis Geoffroy would put it in 1774, is a question that is really very interesting to explore. So I'm trying to look really at some of the factors that drove this increased consumption of new exotic foods and drugs in a particular place and time. And today what I want to talk about principally is one main aspect of this question, which is the way that print and public space became used for the promotion of these drugs, either exotic plant substances in their own rights or combinations thereof, as in Oviatin. Now, I began with shop fronts, so let's take a, a look at a rather different sort of way in which print could be used to promote the consumption of exotic drugs in exactly the same decade. And this is the fairly well-known case of Ipecacuana. <coughs> the son of a famous Dutch physician and alchemist arrived in Paris in the 1670s and Latinized his name, as was the custom of doctors internationally, to Jean-Adrien Helvetius. In 1680, Helvetius happened to learn, via a merchant associate, of a good supply within the capital of the Brazilian drug, Ipecacuana, a new dysentery treatment that had reached Paris in 1672. It hadn't been known in the city before then. What was different by 1680 was that the crown was becoming increasingly interested in new exotic remedies. And this came about as... Uh, a result of a recent successful cure of the heir to the throne, the Dauphin, using Quinquina in 1679. What followed during the 1680s and early 1690s was a whole spate 
of copycat attempts by medical entrepreneurs to secure royal patronage for their remedies. So we might see this moment as a kind of turning point in crown relations with these exotic drugs. Elvetius was one of the few who was actually successful in promoting his remedy. Um, and in 1686, he managed to cure, again, the dauphin, who was fairly sickly dauphin, um, of dysentery using ipecacuana. And the secret of his remedy was bought by the crown. He was placed in charge of the trade in the new drug within the French mainland and colonies. Elvetius went to great lengths to encourage the uptake of his remedies. He sent out countless leaflets of instructions, many of which are stored in the uh, Bibliothèque Nationale in, in Paris. And what's interesting about this is it shows us very clearly that um, he's producing two forms of knowledge of the drugs that he's selling. One of them is tailored to a more expert audience, that is the audience of provincial physicians. And this is what we have on the right here. And these sorts of documents would typically be anything between sort of about three and 11 pages long. And the one on the left here is the sort of thing that was sent out, and fewer of these survive, in fact, but this was for a patient. Um, and notice the big differences here. The patient ones were usually no more than one or at most two sides in length. So essentially the doctors are being given a huge amount of information, whereas the patients are getting a very pruned down and simplified version of the sort of information that they might have. Now, so this is a very interesting situation in general terms about how exotic drugs could get into the system in Paris because here we have a trained physician, albeit coming from outside France, who is able to team up with government and make money by allying himself with a small number of proprietary remedies of which he was the discoverer. And he's very much associated with exotic drugs. So you can see this particular one is um, Pereira Brava, um, I'm not going to be dwelling on that, but he, most of his um, remedies did use some kind of exotic imported drug, usually from the West Indies or the Americas more generally. Now, Avesius was in a rather a strange position in terms of the medical uh, world of Paris. He had qualified as a doctor and he had a very respectable medical degree. Um, but he had not qualified from the Parisian medical faculty, which meant that he was an outsider. Um, and that meant that he wasn't allowed to practice medicine in Paris. So rather than approaching the Paris medical faculty, he approached the French crown is in, in his attempt to secure a monopoly over his drugs. And this put him in a particular category of people within the medical marketplace. And these were the privileged proprietors of remedies. They were people who had succeeded in obtaining, usually from the king's premier physician, a monopoly over trade in their own medical invention, which guaranteed them freedom from competition for their lifetime and often also that of their heirs. It could be a way to make a fortune if the remedy was a commercial success. Moreover, Evetius targeted not only individual consumers, he also used the crown as a single huge client. He provided his medicines to large numbers of people within disciplinary settings such as naval ships and crown-funded hospitals. And to do this, he sold his remedies through a network of retail agents in the provinces and the colonies, often booksellers, as the work of Justin Rivet has shown. And this is a common strategy for proprietors of remedies. So, for example, Kevin Siena has shown how the London entrepreneur Stefan Freeman sold his pox treatment through a vast range of different outlets in London, the provinces and the colonies. 
And there's quite a lot of evidence to show that many of these sorts of medical entrepreneurs actually teamed up with printers or publishing houses in some way so that because it was a very easy way you know you could sell out your your goods and distribute them much more readily with a printed packaging slip from your friendly printer who would presumably get a cut of the profits um, nevertheless this kind of enterprise and this kind of publicity was in fact very very problematic in the early modern medical marketplace it marked the entrepreneur out as a certain kind of medical merchant and as someone to be viewed sceptically by licensed physicians and their elite clientels, largely because it departed so very markedly from anything like bedside medicine. <clears throat> so in what is a clear reference to Helvetius's enterprise, an almanac published in 1688 consisted of a caricature of a mysterious root being sold in public. The image depicts Dr. Tricotin, who has the made the discovery of root. Unlike the root discovered by the real Dutch physician, Tricotin's root cures female problems, quarrelsomeness, boldness, pride, lies, and chattering, um, using corporeal punishment rather awfully. So the root is in reality in this story a large ash plant that was a stick that was being sold to husbands for the purpose of beating their wives. Um, this is actually one of many almanac prints published during the period of Louis XIV's reign. And they were quite important documents in terms of their circulation because um, as many as tens of thousands of copies of these images were published. The crown was very much in favour of almanacs, which were often very high-quality prints, and it used them as a way to promote positive images of the king and his policies. That's what they were normally used for anyway. You can see that they're basically a little calendar with a great big sort of folio picture attached. <clears throat> this is fairly standard. What's not so standard about this particular image is that it's really rather anti-crown in the way that it mocks Helvetius, to whom the crown had dispensed patronage. One of the uh, particularly interesting things about this engraving, which was done by the licensed engraver Pierre Landry, is the perspective of it affords upon the practice of selling exotic drugs, something that was otherwise rarely recorded in word or image, particularly for the French case. Although facetious, the image needed to contain enough of a resemblance to the genre it appropriated to make sense to viewers. So it may point to some features of the ordinary practice of selling exotic drugs. <clears throat> the charlatanical discoverer of the root, Dr. Tricotin, who's sitting here, is represented as an academic physician. He's dressed as a licensed doctor. He's a patriarchal figure. He's shown bearded in a culture where elite males were invariably represented as clean-shaven. He's wearing a hat, fur-trimmed robes and chains, all typical garb for doctors in this period. And moreover, he's declaiming in a pose that was similar to portrayals of other university medical lectures. And this is rather a bad quality image, I'm afraid, but I want you just to have a look at this kind of early modern medical lecture going on. Let's go back to a detail of the print. Tricotin is seated on a wooden stage. As you get close up, you get more and more fascinating detail out of this. He's holding a piece of root in his left hand, and um, above his head, there's a banner advertising the drug itself. And therefore, one thing we can say is that 
it, the suggestion here is that both speech and text are being featured in the act of selling the wares, suggesting that selling is both about reading and about listening and viewing. Banners, illustrations and declamation are being combined and this suggests that both written and oral channels were very important in this kind of advertising. The open spaces of the city were important sites for this kind of commerce in exotic drugs. On a visit to Paris in 1664, the young English medical student Edward Brown recorded seeing a charlatan with his fool at his elbow talk over a box of balsam on the Pont Saint-Antoine. On the stage behind Tricotin, there are a lot of assistants um, engaged in the actual exchange of goods, and these are the fool, fools at, at the elbow of the, the charlatan. One of them is taking coins from the hand of a customer who's climbed up onto the stage, and he tells him, point de crédit, no credit. Um, while another one, dressed in striped livery, remarks, hurry up, sirs, we hardly have any left, to which his colleague responds, don't go and sell everything. I want to keep some for myself. So the Tricotin image allows some tentative conclusions to be drawn about how Parisian consumers expected exotic drugs to be sold in public during these decades. The image represents the process as highly theatricalised and visible. Particular figures dominate the scene. An authoritative gown doctor who speaks and assistants who undertake the commercial transaction with clients the exchange of cure for money. We can assume that there was also an attempt at verisimilitude in the picturing of the sales transaction itself, for example, in the refusal to offer credit, which is something that the vast majority of shops in this period would have done. So there's a real difference between what would happen in a shop and what would happen in this kind of selling uh, site. What another rather interesting thing here, given the way that the secondary literature has written about charlatans, is that the clientele that's depicted is largely an elite one. So here we have a clergyman shown next to a noble, and we know he's a noble because he's got this sword sticking out of his belt here, and only nobles were allowed to wear a sword. Um, if I move on one... Um, Oh yes, so reaching up to the, the, the stage on the other side is a man dressed in shirt sleeves, clearly less well-to-do. So here he is. And if you look at the text next to that, he's saying, c'est pour notre maître, it's for our master. And this suggests that he's either supposed to be a working man in a, in a, in a manufactory somewhere or a servant. Um, so he's not buying it for himself. And this indicates that we can't assume that just because a person bought a remedy from an empiric advertising his wares in a public place, this meant that they were poor. Rather, the prices of these sorts of remedies were often, on the contrary, quite high, to reassure buyers that they were obtaining something rare, exclusive, and above all, effective. What does this image tell us about Helvetius himself? One, well, for one thing, the interesting thing about the image is that it's such a very high-quality piece of engraving. It was probably commissioned by a wealthy individual or group. And my suspicion, though I haven't been able to prove this yet, is that it was probably, in fact, commissioned by the Paris medical faculty as a way of attacking a rival who was raking in profits over his exotic remedies. But it was also a very well-designed tactic. The almanac image shows how far a doctor's reputation could be jeopardised by being linked with a particular plant remedy. 
Helvetius, in touting Ipecacuana so publicly, was walking a fine line between courtly recognition and urban representation as a travelling fairground charlatan. Printed and courtly receptions of his enterprise were thus distinct. He had respect and reputation at court, but that was slightly less obvious in the city where perhaps he could be seen to be selling his wares. Print, in other words, changes the terms and the location of consumption. Rather like coin, print allowed shared standards of value to be circulated and to reach individuals who are otherwise unconnected. So I think we can draw quite a sharp contrast between the way that medical innovations were received in courtly settings and in the city. At court, medical practice revolved around local, visible and face-to-face transactions between individual medical practitioners and their patrons. Trust in a new substance at court was built upon face-to-face encounters, personal recommendations, rumour, gossip and news rather than print. News often circulated if it did circulate at court in handwritten form. The city's politico-medical geography was very different. Commerce and the consumption of remedies could be carried out far more anonymously and privately through the medium of money rather than personal acquaintance or bedside visits. Because print allowed anonymous transactions between sellers and buyers, for example through the postal sale of remedies, it created a non-courtly public of medical consumers, critically differentiated from courtiers in that they didn't know and in some cases might never even encounter one another. Newspaper advertising, by contrast, focused on the city. And that's what I want to move on to next. So, just at all the time that all these new remedies were being introduced in France, in 1681, the publishing privileges of France's official newspaper, the Journal General de France, was revived. The central office of the refounded newspaper was just off the Pont Neuf along the banks of the Seine. So effectively more or less in the same place where um, Contugui's shop and the other Contugui's shop were located. The new privilege holder of the newspaper, Jean Dono de Vizé, presented it as a source for information about, quote, all the necessities and commodities of human life and society, end quote. He promised to publish all manner of announcements and advertisements. And a series of such lists of advertisements appeared intermittently from the late 1660s up to the 1700s. For Donald de Vizier, the proper function of the Bureau d'Adresse, the newspaper's main office, was as a physical meeting point for the needs of Parisians, a clearinghouse for all of these kinds of materials. In the newspaper's pages, jobs were advertised and sought Official announcements were made, lost property was listed, want ads were posted, and merchants and inventors made known their novelties. The newspaper is most interesting, however, in the way its editor, perhaps Paris's main journalist at the time, constructed the relationship between advertising and the city as a space of print and commerce more generally. The newspaper (coughs) contrasted with street advertising because it was sent into the home, and yet... Dono de Vizier underlined that it performed a similar function to wall posters of the sort that Contugi, that, that we've already seen an example of, the, the one by Contugi. In effect, in Dono's view, the newspaper served as a mobile and universal advertisement, which all Paris sees at once, 
and which you can even see all over France, whereas other advertisements are only seen by pedestrians, the majority of whom see it as almost shameful to look at them. Besides, they're in such a muddle because of the large number you see every day that you wouldn't go and look for the one that you need, so that you only see those that leap out at you because they are fresh, something which lasts such a short time that in no time at all they're reduced to the same state as the rest or covered up by new ones. Well, as you can imagine, of this copious printed corpus on the walls of buildings, shredded within a week or two, very few specimens survive. Nevertheless, these printed ephemera were important in expanding the clientele for exotic drugs and the remedies that um, were made using individual plant materials. And here is what I like to think of as bill stickers of 1711, um, <clears throat> literally pasting um, a poster onto the wall. And from descriptions, we know that posters were used in certain parts of the city in particular. They were placed on street corners, they were placed on crossroads, on public buildings, and on individual shops. And they also had a very important function in competition between merchants over the same exotic drug. During a controversy in the early 1700s, the apothecary Claude Bier plastered six posters advertising his version of the expensive compound drug Theriac, or treacle, onto the house front of another apothecary, Henri Rouvière, who was selling a rival version of the same drug. Um, so Rouvière comes home and he finds these six posters up on his house. <clears throat> Things have changed a little since then. From the early appearance of medical advertising in the Journal General's advertising list, we can presume <clears throat> excuse me, that among the posters on street corners which the newspaper rescued from oblivion were numerous medicaments. In fact, this seems to have been quite a common theme of this sort of advertising. In 1698, the playwright Jean Palapa commented upon the relationship between print, novelty and medical consumption in a preface to his play Les Empiriques, The Empirics. And this is what he says. There's no empire more widely or sooner established than that of novelty. It reigns from birth. Only age weakens it. And it's never so sovereign as when it's in its minority. But there's every sign that this minority will last a long time, especially where medicine is concerned. Let someone advertise an elixir, a quintessence, an opiate with a magnificent name and a new manner of using it, and everyone comes running. Palapa, who wrote for the Comédie Française Theatre, remarked that there had been a general move away from using plant simples on their own and towards more complex compound remedies, even among physicians, and he blamed this on consumers' desire for an instant return to health from the diseases caused by their bad eating and sleeping habits. But one other main reason for the excitement <coughs> over new remedies can be, in, could be explained by a wider view among the literature elite themselves of inhabiting an age of discovery. So, for example, the antiquarian physician Jacob Spon ranked Kinkina on a par with Harvey's discovery of the circulation of the blood. 
In effect, he said, this century seems to be a century of new inventions. Theologians have discovered manuscripts by the church fathers which had never previously been published. Historians have published new histories of all the provinces. Lawyers have compiled codes and new laws dictated to them by common sense and study. Physicians have discovered the circulation of the blood, the lacteal veins, quinquina, and a thousand other things known to their forefathers. And he goes on, and I think one point I want to make here is this is obviously not your standard scientific revolution story because that doesn't usually include the church fathers in it. But what is interesting is the way that these exotic drugs are being ranked up there with other things that we think of as much more typical of the mid-17th century changes in medical knowledge. So not very far away from the Bureau d'Adresse, at the Collège des Quatre Nations, another apothecary, Léonard Bier, who may have been related to Claude, had a shop on the ground floor where he produced highly expensive medicinal extracts of fashionable exotic substances like tea, coffee, vanilla and quinquina. Now, only a few short tracts attesting to the existence of this business survive, but they show how we can use physical documents to understand the ways in which print was actually being used for advertising purposes in the space of the shop itself and how it facilitated consumption. Now, here is one of Bier's little brochures. It's called Le Bon Usage du Café Volatile, um, the good, the proper use of, of volatile coffee. And it's published, I mean, you know, it doesn't have a date, but it's about 1690 or so. And re- it refers to a product which Bier claimed to somehow extract the ethereal or volatile parts of the coffee bean. In other words, those that, according to iatrochemical theory, were the effective ones as a drug. The aim was to remove the earthy and coarser parts of the coffee and leave behind only the efficacious chemical essence. Um, And in order to do this, you were supposed to use a specially designed device for roasting the coffee beans, which didn't allow the volatile parts to evaporate off. And what he sells in the shop is either this device or else the coffee beans specially treated with this device. Um, And they cost about 30 times as much as his other more ordinary drugs. So this is a very lucrative enterprise indeed. Um, And you you might be sitting there thinking, well, why coffee? This is not a drug. But in this period, it's sufficiently new that it's seen very much as a drug. It was recommended as a preventative for all diseases of the head, such as apoplexy, paralysis, and other soporific maladies, and as a cure for vertigo, catarrh, toothache, lethargy, and frenzy. So a bit of a kind of panacea, really. And it's also touted as an antidote to drunkenness, which may be useful to some of you in the audience later in the evening. Now, I wonder if anyone can say anything about what that front cover looks like to you. What do you notice about it in particular? I tried to take a photo that highlights the particularly salient aspect of this piece of paper or little. It's well thumbed, absolutely. Thank you. Now, so, and you can't see terribly well, but it's really discoloured in a way that suggests that it's been opened and closed and opened and closed many, many times. So we know this has been used an awful lot, okay? 
Um, and it suggests also from the discoloration, because if you know anything about sort of early paper, you'll know that really it's very, very in- enduring indeed. And if you look inside a 17th century book, the paper is really pristine, very, very clean looking. Um, so for something to turn this brown and be this well worn, um, it's been exposed to a lot of wear and probably also to the open air. And if we have a look at the top of this document, I don't know if you can see there, I tried to make photos that would show this very clearly. On the left hand side the hole is going in and on the right hand side which represents the back of the page it's coming out through the other so there's a a mark of this being punched through with some kind of needle and that suggests very strongly that this device was probably put on a spike or it was somehow put, put on some string and suspended and therefore it was probably actually out on the shop counter for customers to peruse while they were shopping or else stuck on the wall in some way. So this is an item that's been used literally inside the shop to uh, have a look at what this new product is before you buy. Um, another one of his brochures is equally interesting and this was clearly something that most likely found its way into a user's home. And this one is one on chocolate. The reader has underlined passages that explain how you should prepare drinking chocolate, which is something that was normally made at home. And it shows us that in this period in the 1690s, consumers in Paris are actually trying to get advice on how you should use these exotic substances, um, how you should prepare them and what you should use them for. And I think I've got a nice picture. Yes, this is this shows um, basically you'd get um, uh, one of the co- the chocolate specialists coming round to your house with their marble um, platter here and a rolling pin, and they would make the chocolate for you. They would grind up the uh, cocoa beans into a paste in front of you so that you could see what was going into it. So it's very much a kind of link between um, the household and uh, the, these specialists, as it were. So to to round up the story then, I've tried to give you a whistle-stop tour of one important new set of practices that is very closely linked to the rise in consumption of exotic drugs. Chocolate and coffee don't count as remedies for us, but of course they definitely did so in the early modern period. So it's really quite important for the historian to look broadly across the range of exotic drugs and to attend to these in the same breath with other kinds of medicinal substances like ipecacuana, opium or oviatan that I've talked about this afternoon. My hope um, as the project continues is that I'll be able to gain an in overview of how these drugs, spices and drinks found a place in both court and city as the French political world transformed in the decades between 1670 and 1730. The association between innovation and print more generally as well as the specific links between print and materia medica played an important role in disseminating knowledge about the nature of these substances and how to use them. By taking a geographical approach to this question and looking at the ways in which medical advertisement was spatially distributed throughout the city, we can really gain quite a lot of information, um, I hope you'll agree, about how, when, where and by whom these substances were used, how they were encountered and what role print played in mediating their consumption. Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.